The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, the UC Board of Regents, or Ruth Shapen, local lawyer for peace whom we lost April 18th. Good morning, I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the April 27th, 2021 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, UCI political science professor, Matthew Beckman, weighs in with our periodic ritual of examining a new presidency at the first 100 days of the administration. Then in the second segment, Branda Lynn, co-founder of Irvine Watchdog, continues to raise local civic game with more delicate issues. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. Returning to the show is my guest, Matthew Beckman, UCI Professor of Political Science, here today to take us through our Ask a Leader ritual of examining a new presidency at around the first 100 days, now being that of the Joe Biden, Kamala Harris administration. Matt Beckman's work focuses on the presidency, Congress, interest groups, mass media, and politics. How presidents manage time, people, and process he's working on, and we can look forward to seeing that perhaps by the end of the summer. Matt Beckman's recent other publications include A President's Decisions and the Presidential Difference and Pushing the Agenda, Presidential Leadership in U.S. Lawmaking, 1953-2004, and Did Nixon Quit Before He Resigned? He comes to us today from his home in Irvine. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Matt Beckman. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored. Well, thank you. The honor part's on me, please. So (laughs) we understand that the previous administration put up obstacles for the Biden-Harris administration to gain access to many federal agencies, including security agencies and law enforcement. Matt, could you talk briefly, because we have a lot to cover in our time together, talk briefly about the extent to which that bumpy transition may have undermined the ability of the Biden-Harris administration to take over the reins, and how nimble do you think this administration has been in dealing with this? It's interesting. I mean, the most transitions are perilous opportunities or windows because you're trying to do so. I mean, if you thought of trying to start up a business, how chaotic that environment is, and this is so much bigger and more complex, and there's so many more moving parts that each day is precious and every misstep is, is costly. Having said that, I don't feel like the transition from Trump to Biden cost Biden anything in part because they knew what they were getting into. I mean, everyone knows how President Trump was and how his administration was. And so they never, they were in some ways, especially programmed to anticipate how to do it without much help or facilitation. But even more importantly is Biden and his group are unique in that they literally knew how White Houses worked. They literally had experience in the jobs they were taking or adjacent to the jobs they were taking. They had not just uh, ideas about how to run a White House, but experience and firsthand knowledge of how to run a White House. So I really felt like the people he brought with him were unusually prepared to do the jobs they were about to do. And that's a huge advantage. When you think of things like Bill Clinton taking over, 
the last Democratic administration before Bill Clinton had been Jimmy Carter, and they didn't want Jimmy Carter people to join them in many ways. And so he's coming in with a whole group of people who, you know, have impressions of what they want to accomplish and idea, all sorts of things they've done on the campaign. But nobody really has a firm sense of the challenge of governing as opposed to campaigning from the White House. And so the Biden people hit the ground running and had people in place who knew exactly what their job description was, how to set up a meeting, how to deal with the Hill, on and on all the things that often trip up administration. So yeah, I feel like the transition could have been clunky if Biden were less experienced and his team were less experienced. But as it was, it didn't matter at all. Well, but Matt, I just want to take a little exception, though. We knew the business model of the previous administration was to blow up things. And there could have been sort of under the radar ways of leaving things to blow up. And so I'm concerned about that possibility, that prospect having happened. There's two ways to think about blowing things up, right? One way would be that Trump is a strategic actor and his administration is a bunch of strategic actors trying to purposefully game out how things are going to unfold and leave a bunch of Easter eggs that are going to cause trouble throughout the... I I think that's very unlikely, given what I've thought of with the Trump administration. They were really ad hocing it, you know? And so it's not purposeful strategic. It's kind of momentary reactive. And so in as much as they blew things up, it wasn't because they were purposely sabotaging things. I mean, there's a little of that, but it was kind of ham-handed anyway. It's much more that they just weren't good at running the apparatus of government. And in fact, Trump himself wasn't that interested in it. And so a lot of things have been kind of left on the vine, you know, that there's a lot of wilting fruit around. But that in many ways, I feel like for Biden's administration, that's opportunities, not problems. So the fact that there were things that didn't ever get touched or tended to when they came in, they could clean up a lot of things and make a big difference without having to, I mean, in some ways, like a harder example would be Trump taking over for Obama. Obama's people had for four years been working hard at the nitty gritty details of governing. I mean, you saw it with all sorts of things that Trump wanted to do, how hard it was to unwind things Obama had done. I don't feel like that's true for Biden taking over after Trump, that there aren't a lot of, you know, rigorous labored efforts that that had been working for four years that now Biden has to go in and unwind, at least at the level of like, you know, day in and day out blocking and tackling of governance. So instead of it, we understood it was a bit of an amateur class. It was not a professional governing class to have been as sophisticated in seeding those kind of minds that would blow up. Yeah, I would say, I put it a little differently, that there were a bunch of really smart people, but they, you know, the nature of the presidency is singular in that there is a president of the United States. I'll tell you a little story. So I did an interview with one of the Trump White House staff people. And because I'm working on this book about how presidents manage their time and their people and their process, a lot of my interviews are trying to get a sense of like, so how do you set up the schedule for a day? How do you know what meetings are worth taking or not taking? And so I've done this for a bunch of the, you know, post-war presidents and talked through right, how I Reagan- I on one-year lectures when you talked about that. Yeah, that's it's right. really interesting, the comparative work you've done. And so it's great, right? And, and it's interesting because there are all sorts of differences in how presidents do this behind the scenes. Well, Trump was unusual. So when I was talking to one of his 
senior staff people, I was like, well, what's the process for, you know, getting on Trump's schedule or, or laying out a day? Like how, how long in advance do you do it? And he kind of was hemming and hawing and I'm pushing him like, well, what exactly, you know, how do you literally, like, how do you do it? Is there a person who writes out a calendar, blah, blah. And it was funny because I gave him then the example of how George W. Bush's people did scheduling and they had like a formal process and a, and a set of forms you had to turn in. And so I'm showing him examples of these. And he's like, this is amazing. I can't believe they did this. President Trump would never allow this. His view was you wake up, you have to figure out what's going on in the news and in the papers and on TV. And only then could you know who you possibly need to talk to or see or, or meet with. The idea that you could two weeks out know that you're going to do this regiment of events or meetings is, was totally like, it's impossible. And so I think that's the example for the trouble for the Trump people was not that they couldn't do it or even that they weren't interested in doing it, a bunch of them, but that they were all responsive to the president and the this president ad hoc is, leader. Yeah. Constantly in reactive mode. It's the crisis of the day. It's this is in the New York Times. So we're going to stop whatever the hell we could have been doing if we had laid out an agenda. And instead, everyone's going to deal with the daily exigency. Well, that is interesting. Thank you, Matt. So let's talk about Joe Biden's brain trust. How do presidential scholars know who is in the brain trust? And are there maybe like the public brain trust versus a private brain trust? I want to explore that with you. I have some of my own takes on the, the private, the inner sanctum brain trust. Yeah. So one of the things that is just a truism of the modern presidency is that people is policy, that presidents are so busy. I mean, I always tell these stories, which you, I think you've even heard is Reagan always used to joke about how light his schedule was and would say things like they say hard work never killed anybody, but I say, why risk it? But when you go back and study Ronald Reagan's days, they are incredibly dense and diverse and that he's doing a bunch of different things every day over the course. His first year in office, his average day was more than 12 hours long. Oh. Um, his, by his eighth year, it's still nine hours long. So he ran a full schedule filled with, and you, given the flow of information and difficult problems and issues and openings and crises, everything flows to the, the Oval Office. You need a bunch of people kind of teeing things up for you. There's not the luxury of time to study anything, to really think through anything. You kind of have to trust that everyone who's bringing you information thought about it and did it in the way that you would want and is presenting you, They've the because the, they can only show you a couple of options, that they're throwing out things that you would have thrown out too. But what's hard for a lot of people is say you're like the governor of California, a huge state, what could be its own country. Even then, you still come into the presidency um, with California and 49 more states and some territories and the issues that you've you all of a sudden are, are central on your plate. CIA operations in X and Y and Z are things you've never thought about. You don't have any intuitions about or experience with. So you're going to be relying a ton on somebody else who actually knows what is the history of the CIA operate or what are the protocols for this or what are the potential ramifications or do we need to give a heads up to our allies or do we not? 
So the people you surround yourself with are not just like important, you are going to end up relying on them in ways that you can't believe considering you're the president and they're not. Um, And so that gets to Biden. He is unique in that he's been in Washington forever. One of the things I was looking at the other day was something about the Clarence Thomas hearings, Supreme Court confirmation hearings in 1991. You know, Joe Biden is chair of the judiciary. He's like, He's portrayed as an old, out-of-touch man in that hearing 30 years ago. (laughs) And so here he is now, President of the United States. He's been in Washington. He knows everybody. When he is building a staff, it's like literally people he knows and has worked with for a generation over multiple, in many different capacities, over multiple... So usually we talk about having a lawyer's competence trade-off when you're hiring in the president for the White House that you have all these people that have demonstrated their loyalty to you, but may not be the most competent people in terms of experience and expertise. But you feel like, you know, you want your people surrounding you in this foxhole. Biden is unique in that he can kind of have both, that he gets to pick people that he knows and trusts and have demonstrated their loyalty to him, but who have also done, worked in the National Security Council, worked in the CIA, worked in whatever it is. Having said that, I would say one of the good signs for Biden has been the extent to which he has gone outside of his own little world. He has put in place a whole bunch of academics and experts that are not, that didn't work on the campaign that, that are true. And and I'm talking about it like lower level government appointments that are still important, but they aren't, you know, secretary of state, but in these blocking and tackling positions that can make a difference in ways that no academic could. He's put in place people who have studied those issues for their whole lives, which is, I, I always think that's a really promising thing because the other temptation is to reward you know, your donors and your local party bosses and all these other things by giving them some sort of post in an administration. In as much as Biden hasn't done that, it's a good sign in terms of just programmatic competence. So to completely flip all of that, or maybe one other layer to pull back on here is Joe Biden, we all understand, comes to the executive branch with a very, an interesting personal history of grief. And I'm just wondering when I think of a, a very, very inner sanctum brain trust, Matt, is whether Joe Biden and his family having gone through what they've gone through as an extended family unit, are the young cohorts in that extended family, a group of people he's holding himself accountable to, to sort of redeem on the grief they've all shouldered together? Uh, I generally don't think of it like that. I mean, I- Oh, I know you don't, but I want you to think about that. <laughs> okay. I mean, so here's here's what I would say is the, the presidency really is unique in that it like, Members of Congress are a cog in a big system and their personal histories don't matter much when they're voting yes or no, right? Like if I know you're a Republican with 98% accuracy, I can predict how you're going to vote on any given roll call vote. And if I know you're a Democrat, I can predict how you're, I don't need to know whether, you know, you've had personal tragedies in the past, what mistakes you've made, so on. The presidency is unique in that the individual is so infused into the institution that there are ways in which who you are affect how you approach the work and in fact, how it, the work plays out. And so what I, what I've noticed about Biden, what I think is a little different is related to the grief per se, Okay, but it's also just more general is like, he's an older guy and he's 
comfortable with who he is and where he is, the station in life that he's at. And so, you know, so many of these presidents, they come in and they're, they walk out on the like Truman balcony to see the Washington monument. And then in the distance is the Jefferson Memorial. And you get very kind of aware of the burdens of history and sort of the sense that I'm graded on this incredibly ominous curve and I need to prove myself and so on. Biden has entered this job in some ways kind of being more ambitious than you would expect. Yes. Um, Being willing to do things that might fail, like this gigantic infrastructure bill that they proposed. The $2 trillion one. There's a good chance he doesn't get nearly that much. But, and people in the Clinton administration and George W. Bush, people have always been kind of nervous about throwing out things that are going to fail and it would look bad for you. And Obama, right? Like at the initial stimulus, a lot of their discussions are what's the biggest we can propose without looking like we're going to lose. Biden seems to not worry as much about how it looks. And it's like, well, let's just propose this and then we'll start the work from there. So I don't know if that's related to grief, I would, I, but it does seem like, well, I guess I would say this. Every president comes into office learning with their own sense of the lessons learned oftentimes from their predecessor, right? So when JFK came into office after Eisenhower, he, JFK wanted to be hands-on where he imagined Eisenhower hands-off. After Clinton, Bush 43 wanted really disciplined, ordered process. Nixon and Ford, after Nixon, Ford and Carter wanted a more open process, more transparency. Biden comes in. And the lessons he's learned from his experience in the Obama White House was we don't need to like wring our hands as much about like let's work, be bold, be quick, and not worry about bipartisanship necessarily. And then in response to the Trump years, he's kind of, I think all of the Democrats are a little more seared by the experience of like, we don't know what comes next, and you've got to har- harvest the windows you have. And so I think if I were going to explain why he has been, how he has been in these first hundred days, it's not so much his personal history, although that's a little bit of it, as much as his kind of recent political history and sense of where the moment is. So you think that, that like, well, you talked about a long political span, but he, he learned lessons from 2009. He's, he's more taking that experience of not being bold enough between 2009, 2011, and thinking more of that than he's worried about 2022. Yeah, very, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, definitely. Like this, and if anything, um, learning from Trump has been kind of like, people care about results, right? And Ezra Klein has, I, I did an interview with them a little while ago talking about the upcoming Biden administration. And that was one of the points we talked about a lot was in political science, the research is so clear that things that people in Washington think matter a lot or, and, and sort of, is it bipartisan, the particulars of the bill, all these different machinations that are very focused inside the beltway for average voters. They don't know. It's like, is the economy growing? Is, do we have peace and prosperity? And so, you know, for all the things that were going on with Trump's presidency, ups and downs and ins and outs and scandals and and (laughs) the daily um, chaos, the bottom line was looking pretty good. So if COVID-19 hadn't hit, it would have been a really close election. 
And um, I think Biden has learned from that experience in some ways that what you need is results. And just because the Washington Post is writing editorials about you said you want unity and this is a partisan bill, nobody's going to vote no because 5% GDP came on the backs of Democrats rather than bipartisanship. So for those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader. My guest is UCI political science professor Matthew Beckman with our periodic ritual of examining a new presidency, although you're hearing all the presidencies in the history, in the recent modern history being invoked. We're looking, trying to zero in on some of these first 100 days here, and we're recording this on April 23rd. So I guess when we're talking about Biden moving now and acquiring political capital, we're hearing lots of discussion about how FDR famously asked Mr. Randolph, you know, make me do what you're asking me do. He's, tr he's trying to get a movement out there to push the presidency into a, an ambitious political gender, which became the New Deal. But who's the who might be that person? What might be the movement that does make Biden do, do more? So the, the challenge, like if you think of, I've read a couple articles lately asking like how much is Biden really following the mold of FDR or Lyndon Johnson and sort of these right. regressive the new, icons. The Voting Rights Act that Lyndon Johnson was supposed And I, it's, the thing is presidents serve sequentially and they inherit a context which is different than any other president has. So when FDR came in, right, there's no White House staff there. The federal government is a little itty bitty thing and it hasn't ever endeavored to do a whole bunch when lyndon johnson comes in he's got huge democratic majorities and this domestic agenda that the status quo is that they don't exist so you can create all sorts of new things and biden is different like one of the things i always mention to my students is when lyndon johnson is pushing medicare they don't really have a good estimate of how much it will cost they don't really have good estimates of where their budget is in any given year. Like money is coming in and going out, but they don't reconcile those two. And nowadays, so much of the conversation in Washington is how much is this, what's the, you know, in the language of Washington, what's the scoring on this bill? How much is it going to cost? And then what are the pay fors? How are we going to pay for it? Is it deficit spending or is there some offset that we can use? So the idea of like a big transformational presidency is just a lot harder now than it was then because there's so much more institutional scaffolding around both Congress and the president. You can't just shake. And then we're in just such a more polarized era and so much more media attention that when LBJ is passing a lot of those bills and certainly FDR in the extreme, People have no clue what's even in them. They're just voting yes or no <laughs> without ever having really seen them or heard about them. That is not true nowadays, right? There's always some blog and some cable news show that's dissected the most controversial provision and made it into a big to-do. So I think like the thing for Biden is, is not going to be, you know, make a, this big moment. And in some ways, like I always note that like presidents are always saying how the first year feels so chaotic and they in their own heads they're like boy it'll be nice once we get past this initial phase and things settle down well then a year later they look back and they're like man remember the good old days when when we were able to get things done and it was <laughs> there was a lot to do mm -hmm. it gets a lot harder so i think 
it's been as easy as it's going to be for Biden. And in many ways, the challenge is not going to be finding the big transformational things. It's going to be navigating the more mundane reauthorizations. I mean, Justice Breyer should retire here at some point soon. And the navigating- Should, meaning you're prescribing he should or you're expecting he will? I'm just guessing. My hunch is he will. Yes. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, should in like an empirical sense, not in a normative sense. And so I expect he'll resign and then that will take up some bandwidth. You know, you got to do the vet. My hunch is they have people ready to go. Oh, yes. But then you've kind of got to trial balloon it and make sure that you aren't misunderstanding something or there's some skeleton in the closet. And then you got to start doing the work on Capitol Hill to make sure that you aren't surprised that all of a sudden Joe Manchin disagrees with this particular choice or whatever. But for the Um, bandwidth of the, isn't the DC district court appointment, isn't she already, she's already been vetted, she's been confirmed and and, and she's in strong, I just can't think of her name right now, Matt. But yeah, it's on the tip of my tongue too. What I would say is the Supreme Court's different, right? It's kind of like being vetted for pageant. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, being vetted for vice president, you've been subjected to like a lot of scrutiny. But then that's nothing like becoming. So Kavanaugh, you know, had had all sorts of important jobs, including the D.C. Circuit Court. And all of a sudden you get nominated and then everything comes out of the woodwork. So it's just a different level and kind of work. It, they always refer to the people that they assign to help those as Sherpas. And it's like it's a big hill to climb and it takes time and it's going to eat up time that could have gone to other things. So. I think that's the phase Biden, after he gets, you know, some version of this infrastructure bill done, the horizon is going to look a lot different. And it's going to switch from like these big Hail Mary type bills to like, okay, you know, what are the modest changes we can make on an education reauthorization or in the tax code or in the way we implement IRS regulations and such? So if we could talk about what he's been able to accomplish so far, when we're talking about the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021 and now the $2 trillion infrastructure package. So could you talk to how President Biden's messaging, if you could break down the kind of the tactical approach he's taking, if he's speaking to Congress, at the same time he's speaking to the national electorate to gin up the support for, to to build up more political capital to get that infrastructure package approved in some in this close to the $2 trillion form. So this is like unfair to ask an academic, right? Because it's like, not only I can talk about this for days, I have lots of thoughts about this. And, and well, I mean, if you can give us like the, the bullets, uh, the yeah. bullet points of that, that I, I understand it's an unwieldy one, but no, it's, it's a great one. Making us lead uh, lean way out of our chairs. To me, this has been the biggest difference that we've seen in how people think about presidential leadership. So there was this era where coming off of Reagan, the stories we told ourselves and Washington became convinced of was that the public presidency was the key to leadership. And it's these big speeches, Reagan giving a big tax cut address in 1981 or um, tear down this wall. And that And this idea of the bully pulpit as the centerpiece of the presidency became kind of a big deal for practitioners in Washington. For political scientists, the evidence has never been there, that presidents are not good at changing public opinion. Public opinion kind of operates on big gravitational forces of the economy, wars. Results. Yeah, and result and conditions. And 
the president has, you know, a modest effect on that, but very modest. And in one way, they're counterproductive. So if an issue is percolating and the coalitions are kind of forming around it, once the president comes and jumps on top of it, all of a sudden it makes it a presidential issue. And so it becomes much more partisan and polarized in ways that look more like a presidential campaign. So an issue that might not be particularly partisan and provocative, all of a sudden becomes very partisan and provocative if the president you know, starts giving speeches about it. But no, it took a long time for presidents to figure that out. So Obama started his presidency with this impression that like, if we go travel to this state where the senator is on the fence, and make a big speech, it will, you know, pull them over or pressure them. They got away from that. And they realized that presidents are oftentimes more of a curse than a blessing when it comes to getting things done in Washington, that keeping the president kind of off of the issue and working it more as negotiation behind the scenes in private among key players is a much better strategy for building coalitions than thundering around and campaigning with Air Force One. So well, I it think, sounds like Biden is doing just that. Yes, I would. That, so that's one of those things where him having been around for a while, he comes in knowing the distinction between campaigning for president and governing as president, and that it's a different job. The things you did to get the job are different than the things you need to do once you're in the job. And they have, I feel like, assiduously kept him kind of off of the front pages. He's not out there giving barn burner speeches or pro he just kind of goes out and he methodically and boringly says like, we're working on this, we're going to do our best. <laughs> and whereas Obama at that first year was still out there giving big speeches and, you know, we're going to, through the sheer force of charisma and rhetoric, win this issue. Biden hasn't even endeavored to that. And I think that's one of the things that's really helping him. There's a woman named Frances Lee, who's a professor at Princeton and has worked with a guy named James Curry at the University of Utah. And they wrote this interesting book, and I'll think of the name here in a second, but it's the big point was when we look at the top level things that are in the New York Times or on the nightly news, polarization and gridlock really seem to dominate the headlines. But if you look at the legislation and, and congressional agenda below that top level. It's just turning away, just turning right along. It's much more functional. You know, yeah. it looks more like we've experienced in the past. So polarization above the fold mass sort of a lot more coalition building below the fold. And I think that's really important. And Biden has learned that lesson through, you know, experience that we can get a lot done if I don't need to go out there and, and, put my face on it and crow about it afterwards, just kind of do the thing. And then the results will be the results and you'll, the benefits will accrue to you, whether or not you claim them or not. One analyst was mentioning in this last week that when Biden is messaging, when he is speaking publicly, he has a way of using very boring talking points that if looked carefully are pretty progressive initiatives. Yeah, I, I very much agree with that. I mean, that was always, you could think of the transpose as Trump, right? Like a lot of times Trump would go out and the substance of what he said was not particular, like it's hard to know what to make of it, right? There, there's a lot of thrashing and noise and banging, but at the end of the day, there wasn't a lot of policy content to it, but it would make you, ner- like it would, it would send up, uh, it would have reverberations throughout right, Washington. Always. Right. Biden is is really like 
the shadow version or the transpose of that, that like he goes out and he'll say something that is very boring and doesn't at all raise any hackles. But then if they actually go through with it, it's a big deal. I mean, you think of this initial COVID stimulus, whatever bill, it is gigantic. And it's gigantic in ways that he'll be able to spend money over the course of three years doing all sorts of stuff that is going to- Well, more importantly, like, the first two years, right? Before the, the midterms. Before the midterm, but even going forward. I but mean, beyond, it's like, of course. there's so much money there. <laughs> like It's gigantic. Right. You can sort of dull that out. And so if he had said each year, I want to pass a $500 billion bill, we would be like, whoa, that's really aggressive. And But the fact that it was kind of portrayed as a one-term emergency spending bill here at the beginning- it makes it seem not as provocative or progressive as it. I think it actually is. So I'm wondering, Mac, if in terms of a, a president being presidential and responding to crisis, I'm wondering if though the pandemic sort of, now we, we know that it was going to be progressing, we're going to move out of the pandemic as a dimmer switch on a light. This is maybe not that kind of flashpoint presidential intervention. What do you see is the trajectory or an opportunity that could come that hasn't been addressed yet in this presidency. That is, to me, one of the more interesting aspects of what we don't know about Biden's presidency is you can't, it's kind of the you campaign in poetry and govern in prose. There's yes. always these things that you've anticipated, you've planned for, for years, you've even campaigned on for years. You went to it, you've got all these working papers and all these other things. And then all of a sudden something happens that you didn't anticipate that you haven't worked through all the way. And in many ways, those are the defining moments of a presidency, right? Like the 9-11s, the, the onset of COVID, the U2 being shot down for Eisenhower. There are these moments that all of a sudden you have to kind of ad hoc it. And that'll be interesting to see for President Biden he has in place a really good team and he has experience doing these. So I don't think they'll overreact and whatever, but those are really telling moments. In some ways, he's got a bunch of conventional people. So if something calls for a really unconventional response, will they be able to sort of break out of the fact that they are so experienced and how it's been done in the past to address it? That would be a really interesting question to see how the Biden administration reacts when things aren't going sort of ho-hum in the directions they expected. Do you, would that be more likely an international kind of a, an incident or that it does, that doesn't determine? Almost always it's international. I mean, cause like even the ones that are domestic, those tend to be like a government shutdown or something. They're still sort of on tracks you recognize. It's when all of a sudden China, you know, does something with these man-made islands or North Korea or Putin does in, um, in Crimea. Yes. Like, and even though, and I'm even thinking like those ones you can kind of anticipate it's the second order thing, you know, that it's Putin does that. And all of a sudden it leads to the thing you didn't expect that Iran does something or Israel does something at the same time that you weren't, that wasn't on your radar. That's when you really start having to be president where decisions are coming fast and furious and they aren't things that you've been thinking about over your whole life or are very similar to the issue that you just dealt with last month with the same people. All of a sudden, you're really having to, to audible in ways that are out over your skis a little bit. And in many ways, that's where you really learn what the president is like at the level that the president matters most. 
Well, Matt, I'm so glad. This has been really, really rich. Thank you so much for taking the time today. I always appreciate covering this institution with somebody like you. Well, as I say, it's an honor. Like I'm always kind of sheepish because it's like, who am I? But I really appreciate you asking such thoughtful questions and then letting me wander on as a as a presidency scholar who, who, who cares and, and enjoys this stuff way too much. Not wandering on, making measure. It's really, really a very secret special sauce. My guest was UCI political science professor Matthew Beckman with, as I said, our periodic ritual of examining a new presidency during the first 100 plus days. We're recording this on April 23rd. We'll be right back with my second guest, Irvine Watchdog co-founder, Branda Lynn, with more Municipal Scoop. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. Returning to the show is my next guest, Branda Lynn, after her recent two-part interviews. Today, we'll pick up on the matters of the recent anti-Asian hate resolution before the Irvine City Council and how the federal rescue funds are being appropriated or under consideration, all under the watchful eye of Irvine Watchdog. Branda Lynn is an Irvine native and co-founder of Irvine Watchdog, a volunteer-based website promoting transparency, honesty, and accountability from our local government. And I will venture to say I will be having Branda Lynn on a pretty regular basis. It serves the community radio medium so very well. Her professional life pursuits include paralegal work in several local law firms, and she's served as an Irvine Community Service Commissioner, Irvine Child Youth Families Advisory Committee member, and a driver for Irvine's Meals on Wheels program, and an organizer of families forward food drives, and a board member of National Women's Political Caucus, Orange County. She comes to us today from her home in Irvine. Welcome back to the show, Branda. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with the recent anti-Asian hate resolution to consider how process works before the city and the kinds of vision that various council members have for recognizing where conflict is in various ethnicities in the city of Irvine. So council member Tammy Kim thankfully brought forth this resolution in response to the hate our Asian community has been experiencing and seeing nationwide, but also in Irvine. And there were four co-sponsors of the resolution. And thankfully, at the last council meeting, it did pass four to one. And what was the dissenting vote all about? Uh, The dissenting vote was by council member Larry Agron. During the meeting, he brought up a proposal to change the language of one of the clauses. I believe it's the ninth clause in the resolution that describes who the Asian community would be in collaboration with. And specifically it states, whereas addressing anti-Asian sentiment requires collaboration with black, indigenous, Latinx, Muslim, Arab, and Pacific Islander communities to find long-term solutions to stop systemic racism, xenophobia, and violence in all our communities. And council member Agron felt this clause was 
incomplete in his words, and he proposed changing it to anti-Asian sentiment requires collaboration between and among all communities of goodwill to find long-term solutions. So it was really just broadening the scope of who the Asian community would be collaborating with. Well, I know you are a member of Irvine Watchdog and you identify as AAPI. And I'm asking you a personal question, Brandalyn, about your take on what the resolution needs to do along with your own experience, your family's experience in this fraught stretch we're all experiencing. Well, I appreciate the resolution very much. And my understanding after the fact, after it was brought up, was that you know, Council Member Tammy Kim, as well as Mayor Farrah Khan, worked very hard on the language of this resolution with the BIPOC community, the Black, Indigenous, people of color. So that's why they wanted to maintain the language as is. Though Council Member Larry Agron, in my opinion, his um, recommendations and his suggestion came from a place of, you know, wanting to just be inclusive. He noted that, you know, Caucasians, Christians, Jews, and others since have mentioned, you know, the Hindus, many others are missing from this community. And why don't we all collaborate together? Because we all want to fight Asian hate. Um, so I think it was a suggestion that was noteworthy. But however, you know, I think based upon what I gathered from the meeting, council member Tammy Kim didn't feel comfortable changing the language because they had worked with the BIPOC community specifically on this resolution. So that's where it stood. Well, Brenda, do you think that the inclusiveness was considered dismissive of the original intent or because some first there was the Black Lives Matter and then the All Lives Matter, which it was freighted with sort of diluting the Black Lives Matter urgency. Did you see a parallel kind of concern about the inclusiveness, the counter resolution? Personally, having watched the meeting and then taking the social media right after and seeing the responses, I was very surprised at what I saw. I did not take it as an attempt to change the broader language of the resolution by any means. I watched the whole meeting. I saw where he came from. Councilmember Larry Agron wanted to address two of the clauses, which he did. And I think it was a good suggestion. And perhaps we could have added an additional clause to add, you know, that the Asian community would be collaborating with all communities. However, you know, this is such an emotional issue. And Many were very hurt by this. The, uh, many in the Asian community were very hurt by council member Larry Agron's suggestions and took offense to his even suggesting this and then voting no. And I think, you know, had he made the suggestion, noted it on the record and still voted for it in support of it, that would be a lot more understandable. But personally, you know, I think he should have voted yes and just noted his desire to change that one clause and to make it more inclusive. However, what we see happening very often is, you know, we see something posted on social media, we see somebody we trust saying something without having watched the meeting ourselves, and it can inadvertently misrepresent what actually occurred. And, you know, was council member Larry Agron's intent bad faith? You know, did it come from a place where he was trying to change the resolution and turn it into an all lives matter resolution? I don't believe so. Having watched the meeting now more than once and being Asian American myself, you know, this has been such a heavy topic and what we've been experiencing and witnessing. It's an emotional time is very difficult. And what I don't want and what I don't think anybody wants is 
to perpetuate the hate, to incite more hate. You know, we have to keep in mind, this was a resolution against hate, against Asian hate. And what a lot of us witnessed after this resolution passed, unfortunately, four to one, where we wanted to see a unanimous vote, was more hate. And I think we all are just tired of the hate. We want to work together. I think if we all just approached it with goodwill, with some humility, um, with a heart of wanting to collaborate with others and do good, then I, I think there was just really no room to incite more anger and hate amongst, especially the council members. So what do you think will be the outcome? I'm not thinking of the process of the vote itself on the resolution, but what do you think the resolution, how will it service what it intends to do to lower the heat in the kind of inter-ethnic encounters in the city of Irvine? Do you think it'll be a useful kind of gesture? Absolutely. And not only did Councilmember Tammy Kim bring forth this resolution, she also brought forth a way for residents to report hate crimes and hate incidents. And now when you go to our city's website under the Irvine Police Department, there is a link where you can report hate crimes and hate incidents. And so one thing is not going to fix the problem or make it safer for everyone. But I do appreciate this multifaceted approach where we have, she brought forth a resolution, but also wanted to make sure that there was a way for Irvine residents to report crimes, hate crimes, and for our city to start tracking them. And I believe she also has been championing, making sure that anything that's posted on our city's website is translated in multiple languages. So that has also been an addition to our city's website that has been a great addition. So does the resolution take up the important measure of every one of us, Brenda, being a bystander and being an active bystander to avert the actual offense to some Asian American Pacific Islander? I'm not sure if the resolution itself, I'd have to go back and look at that, but I know there's been an effort by Mayor Farrah Khan and Council Member Tammy Kim, as well as others, Um, providing upstander training, for instance. I saw that there was an event where they wanted to train residents on, you know, how to stand up and speak up when you see incidents of hate and what we can do. And, you know, all of this, it all helps, every bit of it. And, you know, empowering residents with the tools needed to speak up, to know where to go, to provide the information of where to go on our city's website. That's all been done and it's really appreciated and it's important. Okay, because that bystander role, if that could be an acculturation of everybody, it certainly has a broad application where there is any kind of a potentially violent kind of an encounter. So let's go to the other portion of the interview concerning the American Rescue Plan Act that recently the city of Irvine has considered putting up, what, a $53 million allocation for the city to expend, dealing with the aftermath of the complications of COVID. So let's start with what was the original appropriation that has been deferred now until May. We'll start that original idea, and then we'll talk about some counter proposals. 
Sure. There was an initial framework, an initial plan on how to spend the money. However, since just this week, the city put out a supplemental agenda and they said that they will be going over it once they get the guidelines that are just more specific, I believe in May. But to go over the initial framework that the city provided regarding how to spend the $53 million that we'll be receiving in the American Rescue Plan, a bulk of it, 42 million of it was to be spent on heritage community park improvements. And what kind of improvement? I mean, like, that's Um, a lot of money to go around in one park. Right. And it was to rehabilitate the old complex, to rebuild the community center, to expand the fine arts center, and um, to work on shade structures, expand the sports courts, and kind of reconfigure the pond and the water features there as well. So there there was an effort when I was on the Community Services Commission to hear from the residents regarding the Heritage Park Improvement Master Plan. And that's something that the city has been wanting to do. But personally, it is concerning to see so much of the 53 million that we will be receiving for COVID relief going towards Heritage Park. Right. So there's a countermeasure proposed by council member Larry Agron, and he broke it down in this resolution, his memo dated April 15th. Could you talk to the improvements that he has proposed? And maybe there's, there's been a discussion that you're privy to amongst city council members of advancing those separate line items to be expended from the American Rescue Package. I was not privy to any information regarding what the city council plans on doing with this money. I'd like to highlight, however, on the original framework of the proposed spending from the city that they put out, there are two things that I did appreciate. One was an investment in One Irvine, which was a program to really reinvest in our older communities that don't have HOAs as our city is starting to age. And it was to start in the North El Camino neighborhood area and $2 million was to be allocated towards one Irvine, as well as the Supplemental Rental Assistance Program. So those were added to the city staff report, which were important and appreciated. Now, going to Council Member Larry Agron's memo, some things that are noteworthy that were missing from the city's staff report were the Climate Action Plan, he proposed to allocate $10 million over the next two years to accelerate the implementation of Irvine's Climate Action Plan. And we recently started the Orange County Power Authority, which Irvine is spearheading, and Irvine is investing a lot of money into. Some of the suggestions that Councilmember Agron put in his memo were to convert our city's transportation fleet to electric vehicles, as well as accelerating just the climate action plan and I believe making it more perhaps robust. Another thing that council member Larry Agron noted in his memo was investing in school nurses and resource officers, which he mentioned a couple months back when the city initially discussed budget planning for our city's next two to four year budget cycle. Council member Larry Agron is proposing to spend 6 million over the next two years. Um, And it's something he was hoping that we would use our rainy day funds for. But now that we're receiving this money from the American Rescue Plan Act, we can allocate that money that way. So for the Heritage Park improvements, what did the federal rescue package supplant then? Was there an appropriation that was put on hold 
from the regular general operating or was it rainy day funds that were envisioned or is it just for improvements for the heritage park that were made a whole cloth brand new because there was an available federal funding? That I don't know. And it doesn't state in the staff report. It looks to me that it was being taken from the American Rescue Plan money that we'd be receiving. It's a one-time fund. And I think we have two years to spend it. However, again, the intent on this money coming from our government was for COVID relief. And personally, I'd like to see more going towards residents and small businesses. One of the Agrin memo provisions was establishing a city hall office of public health. That's something I believe Councilmember Larry Agrin campaigned on. He believes the city, given the size that we are now, would benefit from having its own office of public health. There are other cities in Southern California that have appeared to have done better in terms of combating COVID, including Long Beach and Pasadena. And that's something that he wanted to do to help tackle the pandemic, even when he was running for this city council seat. Well, I guess... Based on observations of how the counties administered the public health mission during the pandemic, it certainly seems like a benevolent move to take a public health function like this on on the city level to do its own messaging. And even though we're all cities interacting with one another within the county, that seems like it's our, but it's only two years. So it's a concern, right, that the seed money needs then to be additional funds appropriated in time after the two years. Sure. And, you know, one thing we didn't see, which I think would be such a benefit to our city, is just more collaboration with UCI. During the pandemic, UCI was successfully administering vaccinations early on and in a smooth and efficient manner. And I think a lot of people were wondering why there was not more collaboration between the city of Irvine and UCI. And that's something that Councilmember Agron in his memo did um, note. And as a working mother, there was another item that he mentioned that I really appreciated, which was expanding support for childcare. And I know a lot of moms during the pandemic that had to quit their work because they could not juggle working full time while having children in virtual learning full time. It's been a challenge on many families And I think for those who need to go back to work and their children are still in virtual learning, that's quite a challenge. And there aren't enough childcare options. And there haven't been actually in Irvine for quite some time now. Brandon, so how do you recommend listeners plug into consideration of where the $53 million appropriated for just Irvine City to use of the American Rescue Plan Act? Well, I would love to, and I'm sure the city will begin reaching out to the community and asking how residents want to see this money allocated. Council member Larry Agron did put out on his social media site, I believe, a survey asking residents where they want to see the money going. And I think it's very important that the city solicit input from residents on where the money should go because they're living out the pandemic in ways that perhaps our electeds are not able to see and recognize. And so I think whether it be public comment, um, whether it be responding to city emails that are soliciting responses, reaching out to our council members, it's very important to provide that feedback to our city as they decide on how to spend the $53 million going forward. 
So the date for the next meeting, so it'll be in May, and then virtually everyone can contribute their public comments for how they would like to have the funds be appropriated. Yes, and I think the framework that was provided by the city, as well as Councilmember Agrin, combining those two and using it as a basis moving forward on all the different categories and community groups that we want to be able to support and help with this money would be a great beginning. And I'm thinking this process might be a good education for people about what role the city plays in their own lives, just how the city works. I mean, it, it can be a really good tool engaging constituents in this process. Absolutely. I mean, the best government is one where we have a majority of the residents participating in providing feedback and providing input on the decisions that are being made. And these decisions impact us directly. The decisions that are being made in our local government impact us directly. So, you know, it's very important. And I think the more engaged the residents are, the better. And so I just really encourage everybody to keep tabs on this issue specifically, if and when the opportunity arises to provide public comment to do so. And they can also follow you on irvinewatchdog.org for the window of opportunity to comment. Yes, thank you very much. You know, while we're asking the public to submit general public comments, I guess one concern that Irvine Watchdog has noted is the fact that during general public comments, if a caller speaks on an agenda item that has already been voted on and discussed by the city council, there has been this practice of stopping the speaker from providing their public comment. And my understanding, general public comments, is that residents, this is their opportunity to speak on anything under the sun. Right. It's unlimited. Yeah. And it really should be unlimited. So I'd really encourage the city council and the residents to ask our city council to allow any and all comments made during general public comments, whether or not it pertains to a specific agenda item. There are not a lot of ways that the public can be heard. And this is one of the few. So just to make sure that the residents feel heard, it gives the residents an opportunity to be involved in the decision-making process. I'd really encourage our city going forward to allow all comments that are made during general public comments to be heard. It's only three minutes and that's all that residents get. I think a lot of residents would appreciate the opportunity to make their statement fully and not be cut off and not be stopped because they missed that specific window on an agenda item. Well, good. Well, again, I thank you, Branda Lynn, for being back on Ask a Leader, and I'm just keeping you on speed dial for those next important local installments so people really are engaged and getting so much more out of their civic life. We all deserve that. Yes, we do. Well, thank you so much. My guest was Branda Lynn, co-founder of Irvine Watchdog. Thanks again. Thank you for having me. Well, that's my wrap. For next week, Dr. Jason Karlowish returns to the show for the full hour, bringing his new book, The Problem of Alzheimer's, How Science, Culture, and Politics Turned a Rare Disease into a Crisis and What We Can Do About It. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone.